Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Let's make our way to the Gospel of Mark this evening. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. The next installment in our lessons from the Gospel of Mark. In the last little bit, we have seen the Lord. This is His Passion Week. It all starts with Palm Sunday situation. I'm not sure where we are in the week. If, like I believe, the Lord was crucified on a Wednesday, these things would be taking place on the Monday and Tuesday of the week. The notes that I have in front of me, commentary I have in front of me, uh, mentions that these things are taking place on the Tuesday. So whatever day of the week, it's in that Passion Week. So far, we have seen the Lord being questioned by four different groups of people. If you back up just to review some of this, into chapter 11 and verse number 27, I believe is where we find the first group that is questioning him. Mark 11:27, and they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And their question in verse 28, by what authority doest thou these things? You move ahead in the Gospel of Mark and come to chapter 12, this time to verse 13, Mark 12:13, and they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So the chief priests and scribes and elders in chapter 11, now the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Move ahead again uh, into chapter 12, verse 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, the third group, which say there is no resurrection. They asked him, saying, and they also are trying to catch him in his words. Those three things didn't work, and so it seems, when we compare the Gospels, that they send a fourth group, but it's really only one scribe. Verse 28, chapter 12, 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but again, if we cross-reference this, with Matthew's Gospel, we define that this scribe is coming, and is called a lawyer, and he is coming to also catch the Lord in his words. When still the same week, possibly, probably the same day, uh, during this Passion Week, chapter 12, verse 35, and Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, so he's teaching in the temple during this very, very quick, fast-paced week, and his question now. Now the Lord is turning a question back to all of those people that are asking him questions. So like the Lord Jesus, he teaches by asking questions 
One of his methods of teaching, a very important and unique and yet common thing that he does. How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of God? Now, in order to understand that, let's cross-reference that with Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Matthew gives a little bit more detail on this situation. Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 41. Matthew chapter 22, verse number 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dost any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So we've, we've discovered in looking at Mark's gospel, four different groups of people asking him questions as kind of a last-ditch effort to accuse the Lord before the people. And many of the commentaries about those questions, uh, they really couldn't do anything. Of course, Jesus never really gives them any answer that would incriminate him. <laughs> they cannot prove that he is in any theological uh, or doctrinal error. And he answers, of course, perfectly each of the questions that they send to him. And, of course, uh, they're afraid, uh, concerned about what the people would think, because the people revered the Lord. I mean, they had just had Palm Sunday when they revered him as the son of David. That's interesting in light of the message of the lesson here tonight. And the question that Jesus asked these Pharisees, according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus answered and said back in Mark 12:35, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Two things I want you to notice. I'm going to talk about the Messiah because this is really a message about the Messiah. And so the message tonight, the servant and his understanding of the Messiah. The servant and his understanding of the Messiah. Notice, first of all, the manner of the Messiah. He's patient with them. All throughout these four series of questions, he's patient. And he's been patient with them. Yes, there are times when he... He really gets excited, oh ye whitewashed sepulchers and things like that. But patient, he's long-suffering. Even as, I think it's Paul that says this to us, that the Lord is long-suffering and tender. These men had challenged Jesus time and time again about trying to, of course, discredit his, uh, his claims, uh, trying to embarrass him before the crowd and you know, look, make him look bad, and so then the people would say, oh, well, maybe he's not all that we thought he was. Yet he never reacts to those in a rash way. He answers their questions honestly and revealingly, even open up, opening up new truths, which uh, these people desperately needed to hear. And, of course, he knew what was in every man. Now he's questioning them because he's, well, let me ask you a question. He's patient and he's long-suffering and he wanted to open up further truths to them. Okay, So this is the reason why he's asking them questions to make them think. 
With the question, he's also probing. So he's patient and he is probing. You and I sometimes have a little bit, well, we have a problem with the patience part too, don't we? A little bit of a problem with the probing idea. How much should we probe? How how deeply should we thrust that gospel sword, you know, and, and uh, things like that. Jesus asks the question in order to reach out to these men, and he does this not just now, but throughout his ministry. He asks them various questions that... And you remember when he, when he was asked the questions by the certain people? I forget which one of those incidents that it was, but, you know, if he answered a certain way, why then we could... Uh, uh, get him, I think it was the one about Caesar, you know, should we honor Caesar or whatever. If he answered a certain way, then we could, you know, incriminate him this way. If he answers that way, we'll get him caught that way. And he answers in such a fashion that nobody could incriminate him. All right? So now, the Lord is turning it around the other way. He's asking the question, and we can think this through. If they were to answer one way, they'd be in trouble. If they answer another way, they might be in trouble. So, the Lord is asking the question to make them think. It was kind of my intent in devising that survey we're doing with the John Romans campaign about what do you like about your church. It's a question designed to make the people think. Well, why do I like my church? And are the reasons that I like my church good reasons? Are they biblical reasons for liking the church? So I'm trying to do like the Lord with that. And so he's asking the questions in order to reach them and to probe more deeply with some of the things. So that's the manner of the Messiah. He's patient and he is probing. Now let's look at the message of the Messiah. His question was, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Is he the son of David? Yes, he is the son of David. Many, many prophecies about that. And that is actually a common title. Do you still have your Bible open to Matthew? If not, I can read this verse, Matthew 22 and verse 42. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? So Lord's asking a question. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That part is not recorded for us in Mark. He just says, How say ye that Christ is the son of David. Now, he was the son, but he's asking them a question sort of before that. What say ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. What was the right answer? Son of God. They didn't want to say that part. Yes, he is the son of David, but it's an an inadequate answer to the question. He wants them to think about that. And he's going to use a messianic prophecy from Psalm 110, verse 1, to do that. Now, the Old Testament definitely said that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Those prophecies are, I think, pretty clear in the Old Testament. Let me take you back through Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Matthew 1 and verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Was Jesus the son of David? Yeah. Okay, a distant son of David, of course. So he's of the line of David, son of Abraham, and so forth. He gives a genealogy for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just trace this a little bit through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. 
Matthew 9:27. There are different incidents in the life of Christ with different people. Matthew 9:27. The blind men. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. They knew he was of the line of David, the son of David. David, of course, was given many promises. Some of them messianic promises. A king should sit on David's throne. Ultimately, that was not Solomon, but David's farther son, not the near son, but the farther son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, David is the son of David and will sit on David's throne one day. Chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 23. Matthew 12, 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Yes, that was true. Here is the healing of a man who is possessed with the devil, blind and dumb. And the miracles attest to the deity of Christ. What I want you to see is that this title, the son of David, not only is a genealogical title identifying Christ from the line of David, but it is, and the people understood this, it is a title recognizing Christ as the Messiah. But when the Pharisees are using it, they're trying to use it only in the physical sense and not in the spiritual sense to point to Jesus as the Son of God as well. Matthew chapter 15 and verse number 22. Matthew 15 and verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Why would you ask a physical descendant of David to heal your daughter? She's recognizing that this title is a title of deity, a title of the Messiah. Chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Matthew 20, verse 30. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And then chapter 21, and verse 9. Matthew 21 and verse 9, this is the folks at the Palm Sunday situation. And the multitude that went before them and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's also jump down to verse number 15. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased. The people are recognizing in a number of these incidents that Jesus is indeed the son of David, meaning more than he is just a descendant of David, that he is indeed the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And there, of course, are prophecies of that, like the woman at the well. She said, we know that Messiah shall come. So there are Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you four things that Messiah would do in the thinking of the Old Testament person who knows the Scriptures, I think in the minds of these people, that he would be a bondage breaker. He would be a bondage breaker. And I'm I'm not going back to all the Old Testament prophecies to show all of this. A deliverer, okay, would come. 
what is the term? Is that the term? I think that's the term that Joel uses, a deliverer. And so they had in their minds that some would come to deliver. So when Jesus is asking this question, who is Jesus? Whose son is he? In a sense, he's asking, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is going to be the bondage breaker, the one who will be your deliverer? All right? He is also one who's going to be, uh, give victory over enemies. So the victory broker, the victory broker, okay, the one who brokers or brings in victory. All right? So he would be the victory. And the disciples had this idea, right? In Acts chapter 1, when are you going to bring in your kingdom? When are you going to give this victory over this Roman bondage? When are you going to be the deliverer? So the bondage breaker, the victory broker, this Messiah would also be a peacemaker. Okay? This was a part of the thinking. It was a part of the message that the angels gave to uh, the shepherds, I believe it was. Um, <clears throat> peace on earth. Uh, goodwill toward men. And they understood from the Old Testament prophecies that when the Messiah would come, he would be a peacemaker. We have the Beatitudes, of course, where we are taught to be peacemakers. And so that was a part of this understanding of the Messiah, that everybody would serve God under this government established by the Messiah, and there would be peace on earth. And then he would also be the blessing bringer. So he's going to bring in blessings or benefits. Maybe you can think of it in the sense of a utopia, this kingdom of God idea that would be there, a perfect world where all is good and beneficial, uh, that's going to come when the Messiah comes. So that was all part of the Old Testament thinking. All right. So in the minds of the students of the Old Testament who were really thinking biblically about this, the Messiah would be a bondage breaker, he'd be a victory broker, a peacemaker, and a blessing bringer. All of those things would come. Now think about that in a practical sense for you and I. We're not Jewish, not looking for the Messiah as such, but in Christ we have all of that, don't we? Isn't the bondage broken in Christ? Don't we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, amen. And don't we have peace in Christ? Don't we have blessings in Christ? Yeah, we have all the benefits of the Messiah by being in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to come to the nation of Israel when they finally accept him as the Messiah. Those things would have been, should have been, in the thinking of these Old Testament characters. I'm thinking Old Testament characters as they're students of the Old Testament. They're in the New Testament era, of course, but it's pre-cross. It's about to take place. But thinking and looking toward the Messiah. In a sense, Jesus is asking the question to these people, what do you think about this? Whose son is Jesus? Will he be the bondage breaker? Will he be that victory broker? Will he be a peacemaker? You're trying to stir things up here, not bring peace with your question. And is he, whose son is he? Will he bring the blessings? In other words, will you, do you accept Jesus as the Messiah? It's still a question for the Jew today, or anyone really, for that matter. Who is it in your life that will break the bondage of sin? 
Who is it that's going to give victory in your life? Who will bring peace? Who will bring blessing? The only answer to that question is the right answer. Whose son is he? Is he just David's son? Is he a married individual? Is that the one who's going to bring all of this? No, it can't be. It can't be. A mere man could not bring all these things. It must be God's Messiah. And by the way, the Messiah is the, uh, the Old Testament word for the New Testament word, Christ, right? Both of them mean the anointed one, the one appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then is the meaning of this Messiah? Back to our text here in Mark, in Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 12 and verse number 36. Jesus asked the question in verse 35, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's quoting from Psalm 110 verse number 1. We don't necessarily need to go back to that text because it's pretty much the same as what you have here in Mark's Gospel. And uh, I noticed that comparing it, your King James text in Mark is the same as your King James text in Psalm 110 and verse number 11. Notice here in our text, the first word word is in all caps. What does that mean? It's the Old Testament word Jehovah. Now, I didn't look at what this Greek is, but there's basically only one word for Lord in the New Testament, Kyrios. But in the Old Testament, there are several words for Lord. And this first one, caps, all caps, means it's the word Jehovah. So Jehovah said to my Lord, that's the Old Testament word, Adonai, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the Lord said to my Lord, God said to the Lord Jesus Christ, Sit thou at my right hand. That's the only person that can sit on that hand. If you take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13, Hebrews 1.13, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? That's a quote from the last part of Psalm 110 verse 1. The first part said, the Lord said unto my Lord. So that is addressed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not say that to the angels, but he said that to Christ. So in this first chapter of Hebrews, Paul, I believe he's writing Hebrews, is identifying the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord to whom God said, sit thou at my right hand. And then let's go over to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Let's read verse 11. And every priest standing daily, ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, this one man is Christ, for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Okay, so that's the Lord's place, to sit on the right hand of the Lord. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. That's still coming. When the enemy shall be made his footstool, put the, his feet up on the enemies and be the conqueror, be the victor. Okay, so we're identifying this passage of scripture that uh, Paul is, or that Mark is quoting, that Jesus is quoting, recorded for us in Mark, as identifying the Lord Jesus Christ. How did David say, the Lord said unto my Lord? Okay, here's the thought. If Jesus 
is merely David's son. Generations go, you know, but merely the descendant, physical descendant of David. How does David's son say, my Lord? David is saying this, my Lord. He's calling the son, my Lord. How does David call his son, my Lord? That's the question. In other words, Jesus is trying to get these uh, Pharisees and the ones questioning him to realize that he is David's son, yes, but he's more than David's son. He is God's son. So the correct idea of the Messiah is that he is the Lord of David. Not just David's son, but he is the Lord of David. Scripture does not say that Messiah is the son of David only, but that he is the Lord of David. And so, notice again how Jesus says this. Back in Mark chapter 12, and verse number 36, For David himself said, By the Holy Ghost. What's that? That's a phrase identifying the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. David is a holy man of God, moved by the Spirit of God to write the Holy Scriptures. All that theology is right in there. How is it? David himself said, by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said unto my Lord. In effect, God said to Jesus Christ, calling Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Okay? So, David called the Messiah Lord in the Spirit. And then he says, The Lord said unto my Lord, and of course the first Lord is Jehovah, the second Lord is Adonai, or what we could say Messiah. So David is unquestionably calling Messiah my Lord. And then we notice that David said that my Lord sits on God's right hand. Okay, And the only one sitting on that place is the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied, and of course we see it, we see it fulfilled. The uh, scribes and Pharisees didn't have the book of Hebrews like we do, but it's clear there. And of course, like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, they didn't have Ephesians 1 20 either, but Ephesians 1 20, Paul says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him on his own right hand in heavenly places. Alright, and then Philippians, the scribes and Pharisees and so forth did not have the book of Philippians yet either. But Philippians 2.9, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. With the idea he's seated there beside the Father and uh, he's exalted to that place. And then he says, David uh, said that my Lord's enemies are to be made his footstool. So the Messiah is Lord for all his enemies to be subjected unto him. Again, we go back to that concept of the Messiah. He would be a bondage breaker, a victory broker, a peacemaker, and a blessing bringer. That's the Messiah. They should have understood it. The people understood it. The people understood it. I like the last verse of Mark's section here that we're looking at anyway. Verse 37, the last phrase there. And the common people heard him gladly. (laughs) Yeah, the Gospels for common people. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, all intellectual 
having studied under various leaders, questioning the deity of Christ. What the common people do? They believe Christ. Took him at his word. You know the gospels for common folk, like you and I? You don't need to have a degree or a position or education to know the truth. The truth is available to all. It's on the bottom shelf. It's not for an echelon higher up people. There were times in philosophy where people thought that this special knowledge was only available to the elite. No, it is available to all. The common people heard him gladly. Common people understood what Jesus said and took him at his word. Sometimes we're ridiculed for our common faith, but aren't you glad we have common faith? Simple faith. Just believe what the Bible says. Amen. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached the church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.